Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz big band leader Ed Palermo. This New Yorker took some time to open up about his world of humor and music that he's etched into his lore and jazz. He can range from playing Frank Zappa to Jimi Hendrix and many licks in between from the bandstand. His latest 2016 album with his big band is called One Child Left Behind. And like his other work, it's phenomenal. Along with the music, he's a teacher and a professor at the Rhode Island College. He's got a lot of stories and a lot of great insights. So get to know Ed and dig this interview, my friends. Thank you for taking some time to talk to me. I've always been a fan of your work and the big band work, so it's a pleasure to talk with you. Right back at you, Ben. So let's go ahead and start off here. I know, based on your website, the activity that's going on, but I always like to go to the horse's mouth. Give me a verbal snapshot of what's going on with you lately. We play at a club called The Falcon, which is an hour north of Manhattan. And the thing that's incredible about The Falcon is that there's no cover charge. It's just a donation box. And so I'm back to playing for the door, which I haven't really haven't done since I was new in the business. When I say new in the business, I was like 22 when I first started, like, you know, doing gigs for the door. And now I'm 61. And, <laughs> and, and for my gigs in Manhattan, I, there's usually a guarantee plus overage. If a certain amount of people, it goes over a certain point, then we get extra money, blah, blah, blah. I mean, believe me, this is still pauper's existence. I'm not exactly Billy Joel here, right? But, uh, but the thing about the Falcon is that the people in the audience... Uh, are so appreciative that we always end up doing better than we do than when we play the guarantee places. Now, of course, that, you know, I don't mean to cheapen this interview by just to talk about money. Uh, the, the special thing about the Falcon is that we do nowhere else is that we actually, you know, when I figure out the material I want to play and the theme of the night, then me and a couple of the other people in the band, we come up with a little play. So we have like a little musical. Like, in about three weeks, we're going to do one there where it's James Bond night. And it's, uh, this show is called Thunderballs. And so what we do is we take, we took music from various James Bond movies and mix, mash it up with Zappa and some other uh, artists that I like. And we put on a show. Uh, we've been doing, we've been playing the Falcon now for about four or five years. But in the last two years, every time we play, there's a storyline to follow while we're playing, and which I think in jazz is, well, it's fairly unique in any genre of music except for Broadway because that's what Broadway is. Of course, now keep in mind that none of us are actors, so it's really bad theater, but it's always incredibly funny, and the music is always, of course, really great. Then when we're not playing the Falcon, we play maybe three times a year at a club called Iridium in New York. There we just, you know, just play the music. Now, we just released an album called One Child Left Behind. That's our most recent Big Band album. Uh, like half Zappa and the other half other people. I have a couple originals on there. Uh, we do a Neil Young song called Harvest Moon. Kiko and the Lavender Moon by Los Lobos, the theme from Scarface. And so that's what we have now. Next year, we're going to release an album of all, no Zappa, it's just all music from my favorite British bands. And I'm not going to tell you the name of that album because it's so funny that I'm keeping it close to the chest. <laughs> no, Everything no. I do, by the way, is always got, got to be funny. My, my the album cover is always funny. The theme of the album is always funny. I could never, ever see myself t- taking myself so seriously that 
that I'll have a picture of me on the cover with a, you know, artist look on his face. That would embarrass the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, I'm just not that type of guy. You know, I don't, right. I don't have a good serious face anyway. So, me and the band's humor is all based on self-deprecation, which I like because no one gets hurt with self-deprecation. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but the humor a- aspect of what I do with music is very, very important, and it's front and central. And uh, so there you go. I think that's in a very fast, hyper way <laughs> that I delivered it. That's what we're doing these days. I love the Oh No Not Jazz cover, man. I mean, when I saw that the first time, I was like, these guys, because there used to be these art guys that did kind of funny, fun art where they'd have like 99 bottles of beer on a wall in a gallery and all these things. And you just don't take it seriously, but they're real badasses at what they do. And that's, yeah. mm-hmm. that's, that's the great thing. I love that. And also, I'm going to play uh, Cletus Allrightus on my uh, show off uh, One Child Left Behind, so I'm excited to get you guys. Um, you guys have been on the show before, but that's that's the tune I picked off your new album. And I gotta say, you know, there Zappa is a real kind of myopic kind of reincarnate in the music world, and I'm very glad to see that a jazz outfit, especially a big band, has embraced it. So before I get to your childhood, talk to me about how much Zappa has influenced your music brain over the years. Oh well, you know what I think. Um... Number one, I would say the element of surprise. When I first saw Zappa live, uh, it was in 1969. Now, prior to seeing him live, I was, you know, I used to listen to his albums all the time, and uh, it had to grow on me a little bit because of, when I first listened to it, it was really, you know, because the stuff was really funny. After, you know, listening to it, you know, to get laughs, I noticed that I was really falling in love with the music that was underneath, particularly talking about the album Absolutely Free. That was Zappa's second album. Okay, then the, when the third album came out, which was, well, there was Lumpy Gravy, at the same time he released, we're, all, we're only in it for the money. And now I found myself, as I surfed, because I was a surfer, a bad surfer, but a surfer, I found myself, when thinking of the music in my head, found that, that I was really, really falling in love with songs like The Idiot Bastard Son, Mother People, you know, from We're Only In For The Money, and Oh No from Lumpy Gravy. I found myself not being able to think of hardly any other songs. These were, these were the songs that were going in my brain. And it's funny, because when I look back on it, it's, it's like the same way that a girl may grow on you. You know what I'm saying? Where all of a sudden, you know, you, you might get along with a girl and you think she's cute and everything, and all of a sudden, the feeling just keeps growing and growing. That's the way it was with me with Zappa's um, music. I just, you know, it was really becoming front and central of as far as what I was thinking about all day long. And when I was in class listening to, you know, or making like I was listening to my math teacher, all I was doing was running these entire albums in my head. We're only from from the the very beginning of of side one to the very end of side two. Not surprisingly, I failed math and failed most everything else I was taking. And one of the reasons why is because I was so obsessed with this music. When I got to see him live, Zappa was doing, was performing a bunch of doo-wop, which I've never been crazy about doo-wop, but he was also performing songs like Uncle Meat. Now, the Uncle Meat album hadn't been released yet. So uh, he opened his, his show at a club called The Electric Factory in Philadelphia. He opened the show with Uncle Meat. And all I know is that I never heard music like this before. I, yeah. I, the only thing that, that it was totally unlike 
anything that he had recorded before. So right off the bat, I'm like, wow. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was you know, Uncle Meek, bum, 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 bum. And, you know, the drums are playing this, like, rock 3-4. In fact, Zappa started that set with him playing drums, and he had a guy, Artie Tripp, playing uh playing marimba playing that that iconic melody it was almost like um march music but really hip so anyway so he does uncle me and then the rest oh at the same time he had just released his doo-wop album called reuben and the jets so then the rest of the set was pretty much just all the doo-wop stuff which i i never really liked doo-wop that much and i still kind of don't I kind of respect it more than I like it. Uh, so, so I enjoyed the rest of the set, but not as much as that one, that first song. But he ended the set with another song for Uncle Meat, King Kong. And at that point, I just thought, oh my God. And during King Kong, Zappa would give the band like these certain hand gestures, which the music would just change, completely shift to a new tempo, to a new time signature, to a new feeling. Everything was this surprise. Now, I had never heard music that has ever done that before. The only time I've ever heard anything remotely like that was like in, in classical music, even though I never really listened to classical music when I was a kid. But it was the element of surprise was something that turned me on so much. I'm in ninth grade at this point. When I started writing my own music and arranging my own music for my band when I was in my early 20s, that was one of the first things that I knew that I wanted to hold on to, I wanted to practice the way Zappa did, is just that it really surprised the listener with directions that they had no idea was coming. So yeah. I, that's probably a long-winded answer to whatever whatever your question was. I don't even remember exactly what it was. It was that fascination with Zappa. You totally answered it. You totally nailed it. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I wanted to get at. So I'm going to go a little bit further back in your life and ask you, so you grew up in New York? No, I grew up in uh, uh, South Jersey, a town called Ocean City, New Jersey. Talk okay. about your childhood and how you got into music. Well, the, my first memory of music, musical memory, as far as it having a, an emotional impact on me, was the Perry Mason theme. Oh, it's actually, Zap actually uh, covered a little bit of it. My parents would watch the show. And so whenever the show came, well, I was too young, of course, to even understand the show. All I know is that the theme song, used to really affect me emotionally. It used to uh, at the, it used to scare me. It used to make me sad, but in a way that I was totally drawn to. And I just remember in my own childish way thinking to myself, how can music do that to you? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I thought maybe only people can do that to you, but music can do that to you. I mean... I just remember, all I remember is the emotional impact that it had on me, okay? And then as uh, the years went by, I got into, you know, the Beatles. And then uh, the Beatles became, when I, was, when I was 10 years old, in 1964, the Beatles became my obsession. And, of course, they still are. You know, I was ruined to Beatles. And then as time went on, Hendrix came around. That was huge for me. Uh, I wasn't listening to any jazz at this point. I was listening to just all my rock and roll heroes. And most of them probably were British, but I was listening to a lot of American blues, like Paul Butterfield, people like that. And then when I got to be in ninth grade, I, I was old enough to go to Philadelphia to, to go hear bands with my older, oldest brother, Nick. Nick was always the one. He's four years older than me. Nick was always the one that brought the great music into the house. He's the one that bought the albums, you know, the LPs. He's the one who turned me and my other brother 
uh, on to the you know the greatest music. I still maintain that music was just incredible that we were into. So that we would, I'd go up to Philadelphia with him to see these bands, Jethro Tull, Jefferson Airplane, The Who, and this is before Woodstock. So this is a time where you could actually hear uh, or see live acts in a small club. Because Electric Factory was just a warehouse, you know. And so I saw, the, you know, the birds and all this, these incredible, this incredible music, music that I still love to this day. That was what I did when I was in high school. When I got to when I got to college, I was I realized I was going to have to actually, if I wanted to be a musician, I actually had to start practicing. Since I was mainly a saxophone player, one of my heroes in high school was Edgar Winter, and his first album entrance, he plays alto saxophone on it like you wouldn't believe, like astounding. Have you ever heard the album entrance? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that so I figured I want to play saxophone like that. And through him, when I got to college uh, and I started listening to jazz, and I realized uh, that the people that, that influenced Edgar, like Cannonball, Adderley, and Phil Woods, those are the guys that I became obsessed with next. So then I, I had about four years where I was tunnel vision jazz. I wasn't listening to any pop music. Besides, right at, I remember at the end of my senior year, and, and I apologize for all these tangents, but, but I remember hearing uh, Hunky Dory, which is a David Bowie album. And I, I remember... I think it was actually even the beginning of my, when I was starting getting into jazz, and I hated it so much that I thought, now is a good time to get away from rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> it's stupid because there's still great rock and roll being produced. I, you know, I, I remember just thinking, you know, well, I'm not digging this at all. So that kind of made it a little bit easier for me to get tunnel vision into jazz while still holding on to my love of my favorites, Todd Rundgren, Frank Zappa, Edgar Winter, the Beatles, and, you know, I was, I didn't, I never let go of my roots, but I just had a new direction, and I'm glad I did, because through that, I became an accomplished saxophone player, so anyway, so there you go, that brings me up to college, because I haven't started arranging yet, so, but that's, I figure I'll, I'll let you ask another question. Yeah, no, no, and you're totally at that point where I want to know, what did you learn in your higher education that helped you conceptualize music and really helped your music brain? Okay, that's a great question. I would say uh, next to nothing as far as what the school is teaching. The saxophone teacher, I think, taught me a couple good things about producing a good sound, but really got me to be uh, a good saxophone player, was just listening to my heroes, Cannonball Adderley, Phil Woods, and then also listening to peers. I think, you know, because uh, I had some uh, friends who played the saxophone much better than me. I would hang out with them, and you just try to emulate them. You know what I'm saying? Really think as far as blowing into any wind instrument, that's really, you're probably going to get the most doing that. If, if, if My teacher never played for me. I would even ask him, could you play this for me to give you an idea of what it should sound like? And he never would. So I didn't think he was a very good teacher. God rest his soul, he's not with us anymore. But I just don't think he was a very good teacher uh, because I, I believe in uh, teaching by example. I'm a teacher now. That's how I make a living. And I play for my students all of the time. And it really works because they, just through osmosis, they have, you know, even though they might not be even conscious of it, what they're trying to do subconsciously is trying to sound like their teacher, which is a good thing. You want that, right? So yeah. anyway, so as far as uh, learning about, because in college I also got really into classical music, listening to classical music 
constantly because I knew eventually I'd like to be a composer and arranger. I knew eventually I'd want to do that. But once again, none of the classes really got me into listening to those people. It was my peers, my, my friends in college who were into classical music. They were the ones that say, check out this composer. My college experience had more to do with being in a community of like-minded musicians than it was the teacher aspect of it. When I look back on it, I really don't think I got hardly anything from from any of the teachers. So let me ask you this. The one thing that I did see that was a big influence on you, which seems to be your teacher, are the musicians and the albums you've listened to. Impact by Charles Tolliver was a big inspiration for you. Why was that? Oh, that's a great question. When I was in college, I was in the, in the uh, jazz band in college, which was a great experience because y- y- you got to sight read like every day, right? That yeah. was the value of that. But the thing is, at the time, I was not, uh, musically speaking, as far as the emotional experience, I thought that all the material that the guy brought, brought in was this corny big band stuff. Even though now I now have a much better appreciation for it, at the time, just didn't sound, it sounded dated to me, you know? So all of a sudden, I, I hear Charles Tolliver, his impact. I found myself, like if I was driving, I couldn't listen to it because it would make me drive too fast. Uh, it was making my heart race. I, I loved it so much. It was like unbelievable. At the time I started uh, composing, and because before I started arranging, you know, for larger groups, when I was in college, I put together a, a, like a quartet, and I really kind of uh, based it on the intensity of Charles Tolliver. But I knew at some point, if I ever put a band together, uh, uh, that it was that I was going to use that as a model of what I wanted to do, the, 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 uh, as far as just that, I don't know, that urgency, you know, that, that, that was always, impact was always a uh, kind of a, a uh, I don't even know what the word is, it was just an example of what I wanted to do, you know what I'm saying, uh, the thing where when people listen to it, they're, they're like back in their seats, you know what I'm yeah, saying, they're absolutely. just... You know, with the grab you by by the heart. I would I would say that the song that I've two songs that I've released that really show the influence of impact was from the Oh No Not Jazz album from the the Palermo disc and an Escape Nonetheless, and then from the One Child Left Behind album, a song called Vengeance. Those songs are are they I owe them completely to impact. Well, let me ask you this: you could have done anything and a jazz career as a saxophonist. Why, why were you lured into the big band realm of everything? Yeah, that's another great question. When I first moved to New York, I came here as a tenor saxophone player. And one of the first things that happened is I became astoundingly intimidated by players who came there who were much better than me. And I used to make all the jam sessions, and I took all the uh, bad vibes that a lot of the older players can give you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. All, all the constructive and non-constructive criticism. But it got to the point where I completely burn out on going to jam sessions. And it was one time I went to the Village Vanguard, and I heard Woody Shaw. Woody Shaw is one of my favorite trumpet players. I heard him play a lot live when I was in college. He'd come in, always, and he'd be either, if he's playing with Art Blakey, and then he would come in with his own band. Well, I went to see him at the Vanguard when I first moved to New York, and he had a four-piece horn section. And he played, and he had you know these arrangements, I guess that he did. And I remember thinking, you know what, I think I can do that. I think I can do that. So 
Now, keep in mind, I had never arranged for horns before, and I didn't even know the arrangements to some of the instruments. There was some real basic stuff I just didn't even know. But I had some friends that were arrangers, a couple friends, one guy named Dave LaLama, who teaches at Hofstra University in New York, and I got another guy named Tim We Met, who is a, a, a arranger in New York, and we're all, still all friends these days. These guys really knew about arranging, so I would ask them questions, and they would answer, answer my questions, and then I, I embarked... I put together a um, non-et, five horns with a four-piece rhythm. Then I just did the trial and error method. I took these songs that I had been composing, and then I you know, wrote arrangements to them. I, did re- I bought a book about arranging by Don Sebesky. The problem with that book was it was way too advanced for me. So then, but anyway, so I did completely the trial and error method for, for really quite a few years. But the band started becoming uh, performable after only, like, maybe arranging for, like, a year. So we actually started doing some gigs, you know, door gigs. Uh, then what happened was uh, I still didn't ever think seriously about putting a big band together until a friend of mine who just started playing with Buddy Rich said, listen, I'm playing with Buddy Rich now. Why don't you write them for, for big band, and I'll, I'll get the chart to him because he's always, Buddy's always looking for charts. I said, okay. So I took those same charts that I wrote for the, the non-net, and I wrote them for Big Band. You know, I got uh, I found out the exact instrumentation that Buddy was using, which was four trumpets. He only used three trombones, but five saxes, you know, piano, bass, drums, and guitar. So I wrote a handful of charts. Now, at that point, I never got around to getting the charts to Buddy Rich, but, but I had become obsessed with writing for Big Band. You know, the guys who had been, you know, running these charts with me, these big band charts, you know, we decided just to become a band. And then I just started becoming obsessed with writing and was still the totally the trial and error method. And then we were just, you know, and then leaving out a whole bunch of stuff. Basically, that's the genesis of what I'm doing today. Speaking of, give me a little bit of a history of the band. You've been at it for a long time. What kind of metamorphosis, evolution, so to speak, have you been through with this band over the years? Okay. Great question. When we first started, when I was like, you know, I was only doing original material or songs written by a friend of mine by the name of Bruce Whitcomb, who was a great, great guitarist and writer. I was arranging his songs and my songs. And then eventually did our first album, uh, made up of songs of my songs and his songs. Then eventually I burn out on it just because that's what happens when, yeah. when, you're, when you're playing for no money and... Yeah, and, you know, I just burned out on it. And so I stopped it for a while. But that had become, like, a, a kind of recurring theme. Like, I'd, I'd burn out for a while. I wouldn't do it for almost a year. Then I'd miss it so much. I'd write a bunch of new material and start it up again, but with new material. Now, during one of these hiatuses, Mel Lewis from the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Band came to hear us. And he told me he really liked my writing, but he wished he would like to hear more swing. So, of course, I was so enamored with Mel Lewis, I always loved his drumming, and Thad Jones was always one of my heroes, that I started just writing straight-ahead stuff. So a lot of that material became on my next album, which was five years after my first album. That album was called Ping Pong. A lot of the people who liked my first album, which wasn't straight-ahead at all, they were disappointed because they were wondering, now why is that doing what everyone else is doing? You know, just doing straight-ahead stuff. So that's one metamorphosis right there. Okay? So eventually, so we're playing, you know, these gigs, and then eventually I burn out on it again. The big thing happened was uh, I heard Zappa was sick and dying. 
So I thought, you know, I'm going to write some arrangements for my hero because he's always my hero, right? Sure. sure. I, I took some of his songs uh, and I wrote uh, big band arrangements. Then when he died, I thought, oh, at the time we were playing uh, once a month at a club called The Bitter End. Then when he died, I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a whole show of Zappa stuff and just... Just one of these monthly Mondays, I was, I'm going to you know, do a whole night of Zappa. Now, this is right at the beginning of the Internet, right at the beginning of you know, people using emails and stuff. At the time, the word got out that a big band from New York was going to play the, music, uh, the night of the music of Frank Zappa. Now, as you can imagine, whenever we played at, the, at, at any gig, but let's say like at the bitter end, you know, the band always outnumbered the audience. You know, no one cared, no one knew or cared who I was. But once the world found out that there was a band six months after Zappa died, that, that there was a band going to play his music, people from all over, I'll say the world, but we had people drive down from Canada. They had never heard of me. All they knew was they loved Zappa and they heard a big band was going to play the music of Frank Zappa. So that was eye opening right there. So we do the show, and it's a huge success. Now, the bitter end never treated me very well, you know. So I wasn't like uh, I was, I loved playing there, but it was only one of the only places I could play. It was hard for me to get a gig anywhere. Even after being on the scene for 20 years, I had no clout at all. Now, at the time, the big club in town was a club called The Bottom Line. Uh, after we did that bitter end gig, I figured... All right, we're going to go back to doing, you know, my monthly, you know, I'll continue doing my monthly bitter end gig. You know, go back to doing my own original material. And so my bass player and my brother both said, Ed, this thing is way too good. This Zappa thing is way too good to just do once. And my brother John said, call the, you know, write a letter to the bottom line and tell them about it and see what they say. And I did. The guy from the bottom line called me. He said, let's give it a shot. So to me, this was the big time. This was the big time for me because Bottom Line would never have my band in it. Now, this is a club that had Springsteen. I mean, it was, you know, Zappa played there just just sitting in with the Turtles. But this is a club with major league history. I think yeah. the band played there, you know, Robbie Robertson, you know, Edgar Winter played there, Phoebe Snow, like, you know, all these great musicians played there. Something at Oh My God. You know, we rehearse for this thing and we do, we do a night there. At the bottom line, we sell out both shows. And now, it's astounding. They, they hold a, a lot more seats than the bitter end does. And so now we're selling out. And keep in mind, still, no one knows who I am. It's not like anyone's coming. It's not like I'm deluding myself and thinking, yeah, I'm really big. It was completely the name Zappa. And I thought to myself, holy shit, I've got something here. Yeah. And so, long story short, we played nine years at the bottom line, the entire time I'm writing new arrangements of Zappa's music. The, we played there every other month. So six times a year, we played Zappa show with new material all of the time. I mean, to put like I have over 300 arrangements now of Zappa's music. I mean, wow. six arrangements of King Kong alone. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that brings us I see we played from we played the bottom line from nineteen ninety four to two thousand three. Yeah, so that brings us to two thousand three. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let you actually ask a question now. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's 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 perfect. 
what I want to get out of you, too, the other side of you being a teacher, you've mentioned some teachers, but I want to know, you know, as someone that's teaching, personally for you, what teacher instilled such good advice that still roils around your head? Big Lisa, go ahead. Uh, great, great question, man. Well, like I said, there was no teacher in college that gave me, um, th- that I can think that got me anything that has sustained me. I was always, you know, because I had, uh, well, I had a high school choir director named Louis Benzon who turned me on to like, uh, uh, some composers, I, I, like Ravel and something like that. So that, that was it. But like I said before, I think I got most of my, uh, the stuff from, from peers more than teachers. I never really took lessons with anyone after I got out of college, you know, and even when I was in college, I was getting more out of listening, you know, listening to records than I was, you know, from any particular teacher. And when I got out of college, I decided I never wanted to study with anyone anyway. I wanted to. The lesson I learned, no matter how misguided this was, the lesson I learned from college was if you want to learn how to do something, you got to learn, you got to teach it yourself. And there are certain things I'm glad I'm self-taught because now I really appreciate the fact that I think of what I have is a unique style of arranging, and I think that might have a lot to do with the fact that I just did it strictly trial and error, and I never took any kind of, never took anyone's, any teacher's advice on exercises on what to do, you know? Uh, but I don't know. Um, I know I'm not answering your question, and I know there's another tangent. I just don't really have an answer to that question. I gotta hate to say, you know, hang up the phone and think, oh man, I should have given props to this person. I remember Gil Evans once told me something interesting. He said, uh, and it wasn't so much about music, it was more about life, and he says, when you get to the point in your life when you have a nervous breakdown, uh, he goes, one of the learning things you're going to learn is that the reason why the world is so bad as it is is because of poor planning. At the time, I was 25 years old. I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. And once yeah. again, it had nothing to do with music. But I suppose it could. But I, but I think what he was telling me was that in politics and anything is that the reason why things get fucked up is because people just don't plan shit well enough. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I just remember him telling me that. I don't know if that had any effect on me at all, except for when I, when I became 40 years old, I did have a nervous breakdown. But that was more of a chemical imbalance than anything than anything, any kind of external world factor, you know, uh, that was nothing that, you know, just some antidepressants didn't fix up. Yeah, I don't know. That's another tangential non-answer, so I apologize. No, 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 you're nailing it, man. This is what I want. I want to get to the essence of who you are and and all of these factors that have gone into who you are today, um, how they've influenced you. And no, you're nailing it. That's exactly what I'm going for. Absolutely. This is, the, the, the this this weaving line of our interview is exactly like getting on the bandstand. It's improv. We're getting to the essence of, of who Ed is and what your whole emphasis is with this big band. So you're nailing it for sure. Oh, I love um, it, Joe. Yeah, without a doubt. So let me get to you as a teacher. What is your philosophy, your overriding goal when you're with these kids? What do you want to do? Okay, now that I can answer much better. Because um, <laughs> I, I never started teaching until um, until the early 2000s, and I was shopping for someone. You know, and I figured, yeah. Now at the time, uh, the way I was making a living was playing in wedding bands, arranging for wedding bands. So a lot of these wedding bands do Sinatra and stuff, and they have horns and strings. So 
So, you know, they would have me transcribe Nelson Riddle, you know, these Sinatra stuff and, you know, whoever else. So Tony Bennett, whatever. So I figured, yeah, I need some extra money. So I'll drive an hour, you know, up, up north to a town called Scarsdale, New York. The one thing I noticed on the very first time I subbed for her, that I thought to myself, I, I love this. I love this. I actually, the one thing I realized that throughout all these years of arranging and playing the horn was that I've amassed an incredible amount of knowledge without even realizing it. I was just playing the horn and just trying to get better at the horn, and I was arranging and just, you know, just trying to get be better as an arranger. And, but I had no idea that I was uh, accumulating this knowledge that I could impart to kids. And then it became a type of thing where, like, I was obsessed with it. The girl who I was subbing for, her name is Laura Dreyer, who herself is a great, great saxophone player and flute player. Uh, then uh, I uh, took over someone else, some other teacher's position. Uh, the kids like me. And so then now I'm like the head of the department. So I've been with, at the school for about 10 years now. Now, my overriding principle as a teacher of, like to say, the saxophone or clarinet is the, the main thing is hear me play. My joke I say to them, you want to you sound like me. You don't want to look like me, but you want to sound like me. That's as far as getting a sound goes. Uh, that's what it is. I don't believe in method books. I don't believe in giving a kid a book of scales. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not the way I teach. When I used to study when I was in uh, grammar school or middle school, whatever, the guy would have this like Rubank type book and I would play an exercise and if I got it close, he'd check it off on the next one. And then if I got that close, he'd check it off. And well, I got like nothing out of that. And I realized, no, you want to learn how to play music? We start with playing music. So you learn by learning a song, okay? And so I teach completely by learning songs, no exercises. You learn by doing songs. Now, once you get to learn, you get a certain amount of technique, then okay, now the songs get a little bit harder. They're going to be more like bebop, Charlie Parker tunes. And, and now at the same time, you want to learn how to improvise. No theory yet. You know, I mean, you're not going to learn. You're not going to learn theory right off the bat because that's like teaching a little a little toddler how to parse sentences and how to, you know, whatever that shit they used to teach in, in like trees of derivation, whatever that crap was in, in learning in, like English when you're in high school. No, you learn the language of jazz the same way you learned your, the language that you speak now. You just do it by hearing other people. You know, and uh, so I would give, I would, I would write solos, jazz solos for them to learn. I, I would have them learn, you know, pretty easy transcriptions of Sonny Stitt and Charlie Parker. Well, no, Charlie Parker is easy, but Dexter Gordon, all the people that were, that didn't play Impossible. You know, uh, so I'd have them do transcriptions. Therefore, they're getting that vocabulary. They're learning that language without attaching it to some boring theory thing, right? Eventually, yeah. the kid wants to know, why does this work? Why is, does this, these notes sound so good at this point in, the, point in the song? Then I can say, okay, it's because the chord is this, the guy is playing the notes of the chord, plus this one other little thing that makes it, give it that little tweak, and then I can explain to them very slowly why the notes work, in other words, theory. But the over lying principle is you learn the language verse and then you learn why those notes work when it comes to learning jazz teaching jazz that's my principle wonderful 
Let me ask you this. It's a general question, but it packs a punch. You've dedicated your life to the jazz craft. Why do you love jazz? Okay, that's you know I owe that all. I swear to God to Zappa and Edgar Winter. Edgar Winter, his album had a lot. Uh, well, first of all, the saxophone playing. Now I was a saxophone player, and when I was in high school, I thought I was good because I compared myself to the really bad saxophone players at the time, like Chris Wood from Traffic. God, who else played bad saxophone? What other British guy played bad saxophone? Because <laughs> um, I thought I was, you know, because I played, you know, I played on that level, even like maybe even a little bit better than some of those people. And it was Edgar Winter, and when I heard, the, you remember the band Dreams? Yes. Okay, Mike. When I heard Mike Brecker, I, I thought I remember having like being crushed when I really listened to him and Edgar. When I thought, oh my God, I can't do that. I thought I was good. <laughs> You know, I thought it was good because I was comparing myself to my friends, and I was comparing myself to Chris Wood. And I thought, holy shit, they're playing stuff I don't understand. Yeah. So I decided, well, you know, I definitely want to pursue playing the saxophone. It was because of Edgar Winter. I got into, like I said, Cannibal and Phil Woods. And then when I changed the tenor, or I added tenor to my repertoire of saxophones, then I got really into... You know, Mike Brecker and all the other guys who played, like, Coltrane, with, like, uh, da uh, Dave Liebman and Steve Grossman. Oh, God, I hope I'm not getting off on a tangent again. No, no, you're good. You're good. Also, Entrance, Edgar's album, was jazzier than anything Zappa was doing. Zappa's main jazz influence was modal. King Kong was, like, you know, was, like, a uh, like akin to Miles Day or, or akin to John Coltrane's My Favorite Things. It was modal. It was a long time on one minor chord, and I really, really, I really, really related to that when I was in high school. So that's what got me into the modal jazz with Zappa. But what got me into realizing how cool two five one music can be, like functional, like great American songbook type of harmony, is Edgar from Entrance. It was it was it was Entrance that made me realize, oh, so to, this that chord progression isn't as corny as I thought. I would say, now keep in mind, I'm a big Todd Rundgren fan at the time, but Todd didn't really have much jazz influence. But that, Todd's another story. I could, I could go on, I, I could go on for decades on Todd Rundgren. But but I want to answer your questions the best I can. So sure. there you go. Zappa for modal, Edgar Winter for for I guess for lack of a better word, functional harmony. You know, um, Cole Porter type harmony. Let me ask you this, and I, and I think this is going to kind of wrap up your essence. This is my final question. I want to know. Everybody has a version of who you are. Your family do, your friends do, your business associates, those that are in the crowd that watch you perform. But who do you think you are? I think I'm a really funny guy who sees no reason why that funniness can't be a part of the music. I'm a guy who really feeds off other funny people. A guy who appreciates from the bottom of my soul the musicians, who, all musicians who've ever been a part of my vision particularly my my current band, I do not consider myself to be a musical genius because the people who I consider to be geniuses, uh, I'm nowhere close to being. I don't think I'm close to being Zappa. I don't think I'm close to being uh, Todd Rundgren. I, don't, I definitely don't consider my, myself being close to the Shostakovich and Prokofiev. These are all my favorite musicians, so all sure. my favorite composers. But... So I don't think I'm a genius, but what I do, I, I will say about myself, I find myself to be more creative than a lot of geniuses that I've met. So that might sound like a weird thing to say. Then, no. 
then you could say, well, don't you, that, does that mean you consider yourself a genius? No, because I think uh, geniuses have this quality that I just know that I can't, this thing that I can't get at. Because I'm, my intelligence is really just, all, uh, is really kind of average, you know? I mean, you should see me watch, you know, play Jeopardy with my wife. Woo! Um, <laughs> like Bruce McDaniel, he's this guitar player in my band. Right, and he's one of my the guy I bounce ideas off more than anyone. You know, he's like a, a, a real partner. What he does for a living, he's one of the greatest musicians I've ever met. For one, but what he does for a living is he fixes like major, like Merrill Lynch, all those people. He fixes their computer problems, but he can do it just over the phone. He says, "Do this, do that." He's one of these guys that that is so brilliant. And when when he talks. I mean, what, what, it's astounding, whether it's music or anything. It's probably one of the smartest human beings I've ever met in my life. Him and Mike Keneally. You play, you play with Guitar Zappa. Those guys, their, their intelligence thing, I, I don't come close to that. But I will say this. Both those guys admire me for my creativity. And for and they and another guy uh, who's a, uh, who I do a lot of arranging for, Christian McBride. He's probably the most famous jazz musician. Now, wins a Grammy every year. He himself yeah. is a great j- arranger, jazz arranger. He hires me for stuff. So that's the th- that. Those are the things that make me. And I hate saying this. It makes me proud of myself. I, I sound like Trump, but you know, <laughs> you know, like when Trump goes, I'm really proud of myself. What are you? Yeah, right. <laughs> eight years old. But we all need to have a, a, a certain feeling of a sense of uh, importance, and it's it's the respect of people like Christian McBride. That and Bruce McDaniel that does it for me, you know. As long as I have that, you know. But even if I didn't have that, I just do what I do. But it's really nice to have that. That's how I see myself, you know. I I see myself. I don't I don't think I'm a genius. In fact, I know I'm not a genius. But but in the same way that I'm not as funny as the great comedians, sometimes I'm as I'm as funny as them. You know right. what I'm saying? Absolutely. So, that that humor is a very the thing that's very very important to me. Absolutely. I dig it, man. Yeah, you nailed all of it. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I, I got a, a very true essence of, of who you are as a person, as a musician. Thanks for taking some time out to talk with me today, man. I appreciate it. Oh, and one other thing. Uh, I'm a guy who my, my main thing in life is fun. If, uh, it's it's got to be, uh, this is one of the things that Christian McBride and I share, and that is any situation we're in, everyone's involved. And everyone has fun. We both have that. If you see anything that Christian does, he does. He's not going to do some esoteric stuff where he just doesn't give shit who's in the room. Everyone is involved, and so the fun aspect of it is real important to me too. Perfect, Ed. Man, thank you for taking some time out. It was great to get your story. Ah, beautiful. Thanks, Joe. This is tons of fun, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Ed for his cool, his humor, his history, and that jazz story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.